Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today on Truth and Movies, it's an Oscars special. Ahead of the Academy Awards on the 25th of February, we're going to take a look at this year's nominees and the process behind it all. Are the Oscars relevant? Who's going to win? And why should we even care? Answers coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So it's that time of year again, the run-up to the Academy Awards. I'm Michael Leader, and I'm joined today to talk through the Academy Awards by David Jenkins, Edge of Little White Lies. Welcome, David. Hey, hey. And Robbie Collin of the Telegraph and Entertainment Substitute Teacher. Robbie, welcome. Hello, nice to be here. So, chaps, before we dive into these films, we're going to talk about each of the main categories, also talk through some of these major discussion points. I want to know, how excited are you this year about the Oscars? David? Hmm... Less than excited, I would say. What's uh, less than excited? A mild excitement? <laughs> no, trace excitement, I mm-hmm. think. I think I'm excited for Roma, because I like the idea of a, of this film mm-hmm. riding high in this very institutionalised mm. award ceremony. Um, for the sort of film it was? Of course, it was a cover feature, uh, Little White Lies film in the absolutely, past. Absolutely, but you know, a black and white subtitled film, riding high is always mm-hmm. good. But I've never managed to get excited by the Oscars. I've never watched it before. You've not I've, stayed up till 4am watching it? No, no. I've, I've rejected many party tickets for Oscar parties, mm-hmm. dressing up in tuxedos, doing predictions and drinking uh, Oscar-themed cocktails, etc., etc. Maybe we'll get into that as we, like, just, you know, course, as we yeah. talk through it. But like, there are some fundamental building block elements of the Oscars that they just don't fly with me. So, <laughs> But right. let me just also say, okay. if you love the Oscars... I still love you. Okay, good. Right, so we're not. Well, that's nice anyone. to hear because I do love them. Robbie. Right, so you do go. love the Oscars. You you stay up each year, do you? Do you? I do. To? Yeah, not always to um to to go to a party. Often I'm on journalistic duty, so I'll have to stay up in order to no cocktails. To, to then write about it. No, no theme cocktails until until once the ceremony's out of the way at about eight am or thereabouts. But it's to me this year is not so much exciting as tense. I'm watching mm. through my fingers. I think because. There's a sense over the last few years that the Academy has reached this turning point at which it's trying to figure out what it wants to be, what it stands for. And this year's nominations are such a crazy mixed bag. I mean, in terms of everything, in terms of quality, in terms of ideology, in terms of whatever you like, the kind of age groups to which they appeal, the kind of social groups to which they appeal. It feels like the Academy's trying to shake the bricks and work out where everything's going to fall into place. And you're kind of willing... 
you know, hope against hope that it will end up on, you know, going down the correct historical path, not going to the, uh, what's the... Um, Sitcom with Chevy Chase in it with the um, community where where you know it goes on the darkest timeline. <laughs> the darkest uh, you know, timeline. you really really pray against you know hope against hope that the Oscars will not go down the uh, the darkest timeline. And it may happen because looking at the the best picture lineup, mm-hmm. a lot of really great films in there, some fairly ungreat ones as well. Mm-hmm. Why are they there? You know this is this is something you have to ask. Who's voting for these? Why are they voting for them? What do they hope to achieve by voting for them? This is the kind of discussion that the Oscars engenders every year, which to me is really interesting. The thing about the Academy Awards is that I started to love them when I became at peace with what they are. You know, they're not this objective discussion about, you know, the best film of the year. How are we going to talk about film as an art form? What they are, fortunately, Ellen DeGeneres gave us the perfect metaphor for this five years ago, is that they are the industry taking a selfie every 12 months (laughs) to portray itself in what it imagines it to be as the best possible light. And selfies, you know, do not always hold up as, uh, you know, anyone who's ever taken a selfie knows you, you, the next night they can look horrendously embarrassing and so on. And if you look back at that Ellen selfie that she took at the ceremony, that hasn't hold up, held up because look who is in the, you know, back dead centre of that image, Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. Now his presence in that picture right. means something very different today than what it meant five years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love the Oscar nominations because you can look back and you can say, okay, so this was clearly something that the, the film industry itself wanted to to push and say, you know, this is what we're proud of. This is what we want people to think about us this year. And of course, sometimes that dates incredibly well, sometimes it doesn't. That, But that also highlights that kind of the impossibility of their task, that kind of existential fury of like, what are we doing here? Why are we giving this these awards to these people? I mean, you know, like to have Brian Singer in the mix this year after the Oscar selfie mm-hmm. has now retroactively been ruined. I mean, it seems like Maybe they don't have a perspective on their own history, what they're trying to actually do, and and focusing in on like who who are the people who really need these things, you know. Well, the, the interesting thing about Bohemian Rhapsody, and this comes down to really who the Academy are. That this mm. professional body actually started out as being a union that wasn't a union. I think it was nineteen twenty seven or something. It was founded, but it, it started out as being like a professional organisation to resolve labour disputes. What it very quickly became was a mechanism where people could get together from the industry every year and, and, and recognise the best of their work. And then that became formalised in the Academy Awards. And so the people that are voting are all industry members and they're divided up into chapters. So you've got a writer's chapter, you've got an actor's chapter. So just, to, just to interject also. Yes. In tw- it, when it was started, it was, an, it was all male. The, the founding fathers right. of the Academy, it was a... They were fathers. Were all, all male. Mm-hmm. So that, that's quite an interesting Perhaps point. That's not to, the best foot to start on. Well. Yeah, right. And actually, this is, this is an issue with the, the Academy's diversity problems and you know we obviously say this as three white guys sitting around talking about the Oscars but the way in which you become a member of the Academy is you have to either be nominated for an Oscar or much more commonly be invited and so the inequality is bred into this system from the very very start from that all-male almost all-white lineup I think that's why the Academy's in the state it's in today and why it's having to take retroactive special measures to try and make things resemble the industry at large more than it actually does but People are voting for stuff that they want to single out as being work worthy of recognition in their own particular fields. And this is why the Bohemian Rhapsody stuff is really fascinating because, I mean, the film is diabolical. So, you know, mm-hmm. it absolutely shouldn't be being nominated from, from an outsider's perspective. But the issue with it is its production history was incredibly troubled, as we all know. That, you know, Brian Singer was sacked from it and then it had to be completed by Dexter Fletcher and there was all sorts of, you know, on set turmoil. There's an argument that people in the industry 
want a film to be seen as being more than the, the, the sum of its director's actions. And so they're saying, well, wait a minute, you know, look at all the technicians that worked on this, the hard, you know, supporting cast. You know, it's, it's almost like a sympathy vote. We want to make sure that their work is being recognised rather than singers. There's also this sense that this was a film that, from this incredibly tumultuous production, has gone on to make an enormous amount of money around the globe. And Hollywood, of course, is going to be very proud of any film that makes that much money um, that isn't part of an existing franchise, even though it's a biopic of this incredibly popular singer. So there are reasons that industry people might excuse themselves for voting for Bohemian Rhapsody that would never occur to, say, a critic who sits down with that film goes, it's absolutely rubbish, there's no way that this deserves consideration. Although the the sort of members of the Academy, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's not actually... There isn't a, a database where you can see all the members. Current no, members no, they, they will they will publish new members lists now because they're wanting to demonstrate that they're diversifying the membership base. But yeah, you can't search who's, who's in who's out. But however, what I think what is known is that actors are by far the biggest group within the impasse, and and that is why they say that the Screen Actors Guild awards are the kind of best bellwether for what's going to happen on Oscar night. But to counter what you're saying, it seems crazy that like. If actors are the predominant group, people aren't worried about the, the the technical aspects of the film, and you know, are people just entirely focused on Rami Malek's performance in the film? You know, the film is just a sort of conduit for that. Yeah, I mean, than... to, to, to an extent, I think the the thing is, the individual categories are all drawn up by the separate disciplines. So the writers' chapter will vote on the two writing categories. The voting system is incredibly complicated. I'm actually hesitant to even attempt to explain it, but it's a preferential vote. So you'll do a numbered list. Your top choice will be, you know, number one. And then kind of like if you know the the, the game show Pointless, where the little meter goes, and then it passes the line and then you're in. This is basically what happens for every Oscars category. Every film gets this, it's in. And then the votes for the films that didn't get in, the first choice votes, are then redistributed between the other ones. And then they all go dee 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 until you get another bomb. And then the next one, all the votes are redistributed and so on until you have enough nominations to make up each individual category, which in most cases is, is, is five. You know, for better or worse, those 10 writing nominees adapted in the original are what the writers' chapter have come to the conclusion that these are the, the best examples of, of their own craft. Then when it comes to the final vote, so the votes on the nominees, that is in every category but best picture, just tick your favourite. And it's voted for across the entire membership. The thinking behind this is that you will have chapters championing like films they're very passionate about. The Academy encourages you, if you if you love a film, rank it number one, because in order to cross the diddly diddly bomb line, it has to have, you know, it needs the number one support. So you have to kind of get behind the, the films that you love. And then when it comes to the, the choosing of the winners, that's more of the consensus picks, so the safer picks. That's why when someone like Moonlight wins everyone is stunned because there is no sense in which Moonlight felt like a consensus pick. So looking at the best pictures this year, there are quite a few there that could be quite divisive. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book are very popular with certain demographics, but certain demographics may want to veto that. What's, how, how does that work for best picture? It will probably gravitate towards a film that most people are at least contented with to win. Right. So it's, it's Lots look, of second picks, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking at the list there, it's, it, it's kind of difficult to parse. I would say of those... The ones, I mean, if you look at where they've been nominated elsewhere to try and gauge the breadth of support for them throughout the Academy, because everyone votes on Best Picture both rounds. 
I think Roma has been nominated very widely. The supporting actress nomination for Marina de Tavira suggests that you know that film is connected with people on a much, much broader level than I think anyone expected. So, so Roma's definitely in contention. I would have almost expected, yeah, that film to not have any actor nominations yes, and just right, purely exactly. be a exactly. kind of from the mind of Alfonso Cuaron. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know. um, a Star is Born as well is, is, is definitely up there. The Favourite as well, Green Book, and I think Black Klansman as well, they, they feel like the ones that have the, the breadth of support among the other nominations uh, categories to potentially get Best Picture. Gut Instinct tells me that The Favourite is one of these films like American Hustle that's very easy to nominate, but possibly harder to vote for when it comes down to That's based on nothing more than just pure personal feeling. Mm-hmm. I still can't get my head around how The Favourite is, is in the mix. I mean... Nothing against the film. I, I thought I thought it was a really great film, mm-hmm. but it's it's, the, it's, it's an experimental choices, film, yeah. and I'm just sort of thinking back, and I can't think of a a film as weird or as potentially alienating. And it's funny with with a kind of like oh, ha, 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 like <laughs> fun, you know humor rather than thigh slapping. But mm-hmm. it's um, I think it's so strange that it's in the mix. I, I mean, Olivia Colman is is incredible, but her performance is very kind of. I think it's incredible in a very sort of technical way rather than an emotional way. Mm-hmm. I think it does evolve into something that is more emotional. But um, I think we'll get into yeah. specific categories very shortly. But before we do, we're going to be talking about the awards campaign, awards season, this sort of six-month period from Toronto and Telluride festivals all the way up to the end of February where these films are talked about non-stop and we talk about campaigns. And there's millions and millions of dollars invested in these movies. What does that actually mean, Robbie, for people who don't know? Well, there are, I think, this year, there are, I think it's 347, it's like just under 350 films that are technically eligible for the Oscars. As a professional critic whose job it is to watch new films, I probably barely watch 350 a year, you know, at, certainly in, in with a squeak. So people who are, you know, whose jobs are, are making films are never going to have time to, to, to watch that many. So what distributors have to do is somehow inveigle their preferred titles into what's called the awards conversation, which is this idea that when you think about potential Best Picture winners, certain names spring to mind. And there are all sorts of ways to do that, and most of them cost money. I think that you you know you mentioned Toronto and Telluride. Venice is another massive mm-hmm. launchpad for Oscar films because if a film comes out of the gate with a very ritzy premiere on the you know the Lido at Venice, ideally with a lot of four and five star reviews at its back, people will take notice in you know late August, early September, and go, ah, oh, okay, mm-hmm. this looks you know this is interesting. Then when it's released in wherever you're voting from, you'll make time to to check it out. So that's one way of doing it. If your film doesn't have that festival premiere, or even if it does, something like Roma, for example, which premiered at Venice last year to basically blanket raves, I think, mm-hmm. you need to then find a means to parlay that sentiment into driving at it, you know, that when people sit down to mark their ballots, or even when they sit down with this calendar of screenings that they could attend to make sure that Roma is one they will check out. Uh, the Favourite did this incredibly well because they, you know, they made it, you, know, you have to see this Olivia Coleman performance. I mean, particularly in terms of the BAFTAs. The Favourite was interesting as well because I, I actually remember with that film, even maybe like six months before it even premiered in Venice, I remember talking to one of the publicists who, uh, you know, had been involved in during the production. It was sort of drip feeding you stuff like, well, this is going to be delayed for a bit. We're holding it back because I think, you know, we've got some potential awards buzz about it. So like there, there are films that are being talked up for Oscars like a year in advance. I mean, like, you know, people are looking at, you know, next year. They're already talking about 
Greta Gerwig's as yet unmade Little Women as being one of the best picture contenders. It's already been teed up for that. It's like coming out January 2020. It's fascinating to see how integral the Oscars and the award season is when it comes to actually not just the release of films and building a legacy for them, but actually in the making of the films as well and actually how they, you know, the way in which they're served to the public and the immense kind of PR and publicity they can bring to to the actual release as well. So, And the reason that they do this is that awards recognition massively boosts a film's performance at the box office. That's why so many films are held for release December and particularly January, February period. It's not just because they think awards voters have short memories and they need everything to land as soon as they're marking their ballots. It's because if something does well, that translates you know, very, very tangibly into box office results. And if you look at the performance of The Favourite since it was released on what, New Year's Day? I mean, that film has just done bonkers numbers. And the reason it's doing so well is because it has this, it's attracted this must-see status. Had that been is released it doing in... as well in America? I think it's doing amazingly well in the UK, maybe a little... Yes, so I don't know the American box office mm. numbers, I'm not sure, but certainly in the UK it's, it's outperformed. I mean, as a, a Yorgos Lanthimos joint, it's crazy, oh, yeah. you know, um, even one that's ostensibly a period drama. Even if you don't end up walking away with a trophy at the end of it, the rewards are very, very tangible. Mm-hmm. The techniques that are, are sort of used to, to, to move films into this part of the conversation, the most basic is you can spend money on ads. You know, you can put billboards up around Hollywood, put billboards up around Soho, lots of stars on the poster and just make sure this is in people's eye line. You can also host Q&A screenings where people can, rather than sitting watching things on a screener, because voters will often receive this bundle of DVDs through the post just before Christmas of, of films that are in contention. A much better way to see the films, of course, is on the big screen and then people will see them on the big screen and then they will have a chance to talk with the, the talent afterwards. You can also engineer viral moments. For example, the recent Lady Gaga gig Bradley Cooper came up on stage and performed Shallow with her. That was something that was, it cropped up in my Twitter feed the following morning as a video clip from, from the audience. And I spent the rest of the day humming Shallow to myself. Now, you know, it's, 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 it's smart. It works, you know. It's, you were going to do that anyway. <laughs> I was, I was no more doubt. an Ask Jeans song, man, really. <laughs> um, and Roma is a great case study for this. Because first of all, it's an enormously deserving film. That would be a belting Best Picture winner. I mean, my goodness, it would be one of the, you know, probably one of the 20 greatest, I would say. Uh, It would also be the first ever foreign language film to win Best Picture, which would be very, very exciting. And it would also capture director Alfonso Cuaron, who is beloved of the Academy, basically operating at what is probably going to be the peak of his powers. So it would be a very, very deserving winner, but not a typical one because it's black and white, because it's foreign, and because perhaps most of all, it's distributed by Netflix. So Netflix have set aside this enormous campaigning budget for Roma. I, I think, I gather it's about $20 million, which is about what the film costs to make. So it's basically double the budget immediately. And they've also enlisted a publicist called Lisa Tabak, who, earned, who, who sort of learned her craft under the Weinsteins back in the bad old days. I mean, not that she was implicated with any of the bad stuff that was going on in the slightest. She's an incredibly smart publicist who, who actually drove um, Moonlight to its Best Picture win um, a couple of years ago. But what you can do is by spending this money, you can you can find ways to connect this film and, and, and to kind of insinuate it into the conversation. Ads have been a big way with Roma. There's a lot of billboards up for that now. But they've also, they've overcome this idea that there is no star quality to the film beyond Quaron's own involvement. You don't have a, a major league actress in the, in the main role. Someone, you know, she's obviously been street cast. Nobody knows who she is. Or not street cast, but from, from auditions. Yeah. She's a first timer, a non-professional until now. 
you can ameliorate that by having people like Angelina Jolie and Charlize Theron host press screenings so people can come along to Q&As for that excitement of meeting the stars, even though the film itself has no stars to offer them. There are ways around that, you know. So this campaign has been very, very cleverly played. And if it does translate into a Best Picture Oscar, I mean, that kind of proves for Netflix there's no citadel they can't storm, right? I mean, they, they are the ultimate upstarts in the industry. It is fascinating. I think, I mean, I, I was listening to this, um, this was a low point of my life, but I listened to this like very lengthy Oscar prognostication podcast this weekend and uh, it was largely a dismal experience. But like there was, there, it was fascinating to hear some of the kind of insidery, to, like this idea of journalists who invest their careers in talking about awards and the Oscars how they talk, they discuss it in ways that are very, almost sort of political. Everything is spin. Everything is, we've got to try and second guess what the impulse of this person is. Like if, you know, I've heard X, a friend of mine has told me this rumour that people aren't watching their Roma screeners because they're much more excited about Star is Born or Black Klansman. They want, you know, they want something in colour without subtitles that they're going to feel good. In fact, this is one of the reasons why, even though Green Book hasn't done particularly well at the box office in the US. It's it's actually, as of a couple of weeks ago, it was kind of comparable to Moonlight mm. in terms of its its box office draw. So it's not a hit by any stretch. But that actually, that's the film that within the, this kind of weird Masonic voter base, the whispers are going, oh, if you want a feel-good film to watch with your family, which has got a nice kind of soft message at the end that is going to make you know give you a warm glow, then that's the one you go for. And actually, like again, that's why Bohemian Rhapsody is doing as well as well because it is this kind of you know affirmative film about about the greatness of Freddie Mercury that kind of soft edges all the all the all the sort of potentially dark, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. From listening to these people talk, there is this kind of very very. I don't know how credible it is, but there is a theory that the way that the Academy's minds work is that they divide notions of entertainment and art- artistry. You know, there has to be a kind of emotional element to it. I have to feel good after watching it. And like, you do look back and it is, you know, feel good. These feel good films do tend to to ride high when it comes to... So that goes you know, quite a way to, to maybe explaining, does it, the fact that... Some, you know, some of these responses from film fans all over all over the shop, you know, the sorts of films that don't get nominated. You know, this year there are you know, it would female directors. Why, aren't first in Reformed. There. First Reformed, Paul Schrader, a very heavy going film. I mean, one, films, my favorite, one of my favorite films of the year, Leave No Trace. Yeah. I can't see why that wouldn't be in the mix. So you know, that's just, an odd omission. But the question is, is that because these films are smaller so don't have the budget to hire publicists who can position them? Or is this because they're just not the sort of film that when you have a pile of screeners, do you want to watch uh, The Rider by Chloe Zhao, a film with a cowboy and a horse on the front? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I don't actually recall, uh, admittedly, I'm not the target audience for Oscar campaigns, Mm. but I don't recall any campaigning being done around Leave No Trace. And I don't know why, because it's, I mean, Deborah Granick is a sort of a no-brainer Best Director nominee this year. You would assume that the director's branch would be hip to the idea that, you know, this having an all-male shortlist is pretty tedious now, even if it's a reasonably strong shortlist as it is this year. I mean, there's there's, there's people like Quaron who I think is probably going to go on and and win that category. No question. This dividing of film into art and entertainment, best director is a category where art will win out every time because, Mm. you know, you have the kind of auteur setting out his grand scheme for for how things must be and, and Quaron totally fits that. 
Granik should actually be in, in there over someone like Adam McKay. I mean, I think Vice, I'm a big fan of Vice. I think Adam McKay is, what he's doing now with this shift into docu-satire is very exciting. I don't think he should be nominated for Best Director for it this year. Um, whereas Deborah Granik for what she did with Leave No Trace absolutely should be. And, you know, you can think of other examples that are very, very obvious people like Tamara Jenkins as well. I think if Quaron's there, why isn't Nadine Labaki there for Capernaum? You know, that's another no-brainer. But um, was Deborah Granik's name ever in the mix for that category? I don't recall hearing it. I don't understand why it wouldn't be. We'll, we'll talk about this when we get to categories, but you do say that would the director's branch look at those nominees and say maybe we should have a, a woman in there? But... There is no stage in the voting process where people look at the list and say, oh, we can, we should tweak this. No, there are. So there are three categories in which there is a committee that draw the nominations. That's animation, foreign language. I can't remember the third, but there are three. In those situations, they absolutely will do that. And actually, BAFTA does something similar with Outstanding British Film. And you can always tell because 50% of the nominations on that list every year are absolutely brilliant films that nobody saw. And you know that those have come from the committee. So in some situations, there will be a discussion. In the vast majority, there won't be. And it's just this kind of organic consensus that emerges. I think we should get on with these categories now. Um, We're going to take a short break. We're back with, let's start with actors in a supporting role. So as with the Oscar ceremony itself, we're going to start with the two supporting role categories. Uh, let's go for actor in a supporting role first. Up in this category, the nominees are Adam Driver for Black Landsman, Sam Elliott for A Star Is Born, Richard D. Grant for Can You Ever Forgive Me, Sam Rockwell for Vice, and Mahershala Ali for Green Book. What do we think about this category, guys? And what should win, and what will win? Robbie? It's relatively strong category. I think there's. It, it's an interesting makeup. I was delighted to see Sam Elliott getting in there because weirdly he has been absent from the awards conversation basically up until the Oscars. And I'm when not. The first reviews of the film came out. All everyone absolutely, said, "Sam Elliott's right, getting an Oscar." Because he's, tre- just because he's tremendous in it, mm-hmm. and he has. He even has the clip scene. You know, the twelve notes and the scale repeats. Right, that monologue mm-hmm. is tailor made. I don't think this is why they wrote the monologue, but I think it's obviously that scene stands out as something you can play, and everyone will go, "Yeah, he deserves it." Now, whether it's because the film itself has been very highly visible, Sam Elliott maybe hasn't been so much. He's not a game player. I don't think. What you often find when people scratch their heads over, why didn't this performance get nominated? It's because the person hasn't gone out and done, you know, the Sunday supplement interviews and so on. So I'm relieved to see him in there. I think Richard E. Grant is it's absolutely terrific. He's in there as well. And Mahershala Ali for Green Book. I'm not wild about the film by any stretch, but I think what he and Viggo do in it is really sell hard a bad script and they make that script work through sheer bloody mindedness. So it makes sense that he's there. I would be surprised if Mahershala Ali did not win. He won two years ago, didn't he? Yes. So yeah. this would be nice. this would be his second, and it was it was supporting as, as well, yes. wasn't it? Yep. So okay. I think it's great that Adam Driver's in the mix, I, and I think he's great in the film. But I'm not sure what he does would necessarily be the best thing to celebrate about what's great about Black exactly. Panther. No, right, exactly. But Sam um, Rockwell in Vice, you can say the same. It's a very funny. And really yeah. brilliantly observed caricature, but it's not necessarily what you're going to take away from that film. It's more, it's a, it's a bit Saturday Night Live, I, th- I thought, but mm-hmm. um, I, I'm pretty sure it's a, a three way race, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love Richard E. Grant to get it mm-hmm. because I think his hunger is is vampiric, but in a in a very positive way. He's very delighted to be there, right? Yes. Which always which always plays well with voters. I, I love how he's almost become a withnell lovey. I mean, he's like. You know, you spend like thirty years to. Oh, is he with Nell? Is he? Ba- you know, is he that person? And then, and you know, he's done all, done all these other things. And actually, like, 
Weirdly, I've noticed him in the background of loads of other films where he's not really been talked about. Like, for instance, in, he's, he's got a small role in Jackie. I don't know yeah. if you remember yes, that. Yeah. He's great in it. I mean, he's really good. I mean, you know, he's become this kind of reliable supporting guy. And, and only in the last three or four years has he become that guy. He was, yeah. he was out in the hinterland for many years. This brings me to a question. Uh, Richard E. Grant, hungry for it and very much playing the game, as you said, Robbie. He's done all the interviews, done all the Q&As, everything. Would a winning an Oscar have an impact on a career? Would it have a lasting effect for him? As David said, the transformation's kind of happened now. I think it would establish him as what he's become, as being this very kind of surefire go-to guy for a great supporting character performance. The amazing thing about what Oscars can do for careers is that it varies wildly between categories. In the case of a Best Picture win, that can either cement the film's place in film history or not. It varies wildly. You know, some of that Crash, for example, which famously won over Brokeback Mountain. The only thing that Crash's win did was establish it as the film that beat Brokeback Mountain mm-hmm. to Best Picture. People still talk about and watch and love Brokeback Mountain now. I have felt no great desire to go back and watch Crash mm-hmm. since it was released. I don't know anyone else has either. But what it did do is it moved Paul Haggis into the basically the bee's knees of screenwriters for the next few years. It let him get in the Valley of Ella made, unfortunately. So it had a, a big effect on its director's career. If you look at what Barry Jenkins managed to achieve after the Moonlight Best Picture win, he got a film made, another film, very complicated film, made within two years, mm. uh, whereas he'd had to wait eight years between his first and second film. So for the director of a Best Picture, it can be very, very beneficial. For actors, it really wildly varies. The kind of really most fascinating category for me is lead actress because it can occasionally move, particularly an actress of colour, into a tier of the industry that doesn't really exist. So they suddenly become film royalty, but there are not roles being written, being cast, to, to give them anything to do. Look at what happened to Halle Berry after she won Best Actress for Monsters Ball. She went on to do more X-Men. She did Catwoman. She was a Bond girl. Now, those are not roles befitting of her talent at the time, but the roles that she should have been getting did not exist. So it kind of pushed her up into this... I would say basically a more recent Land. example is Brie Larson as well. I mean, you know, she, she uh, mm. since Room, she's been in a couple of weird, almost sort of nothing films, and she directed a film, mm-hmm. which I think it's got just about got distributed. It was in Sundance last year. She's going to be in Captain Marvel, and and that's you know it seems like a long road to get to that point, and you know yes, right. and I'm the, sure I'm sure Captain Marvel will be a big success. Whether that will be because of Brie Larson, I, I don't know, but mm. it's almost like a kind of the curse of Friends or the curse of Seinfeld, but it's the curse of the best actress or best actor. I mean, mm. there there is that kind of it builds this sense of expectation that can't really be interesting be met but for supporting actor there's that fantastic anecdote that robin robin williams has when he won for uh, goodwill hunting nearly 20 years ago um or over 20 years ago now in fact uh, where he says that it lasted for a week he got loads of phone calls for a week and then after that it was just the guy on the street was still be shouting mork at him <laughs> as he walked down walking down the road so really does it last although you know richard e. grant is already going to be in a star wars movie by the end of the year so maybe his upward trajectory got, is set there before I sometimes speculate about a kind of conspiracy element in the Oscars, whether there is a kind of, we need to award people who we know are going to be in big films or we, you know, we want to set them up for a career because we, we, you know, we, they're bankable people and we can, we can get some value out of them. It's cynical to say so, but, you know, having Richard E. Grant win an Oscar would that be like, oh, now Star Wars have like got their kind of, mm-hmm. you the know, it's a little yeah. box we can tick that make that we, a precaution we took so we're not we don't have another solo on our hands. You know, I don't know. 
It's so, a long shot. I think certainly because the nominations are drawn up by other actors, there's definitely people will look at this role in the context of a career. And I think, you know, Richard E. Grant is fantastic and can you ever forgive me and mm. totally deserves to be there on the merit of that one performance alone. But it's very, very difficult to look at what he's been doing, particularly recently, and not feel this urge to see, to see him finally succeed when there's a reason, like a concrete reason that we can say, okay, so he should win. This is something that comes up again in Actress in the Leading Role this year with Glenn Close, who is, this is, she's been nominated seven times now uh, since she made that transition from stage into film many, many years ago. And who wouldn't want to see her win? I wouldn't necessarily vote for her in that category, but if she doesn't win on the night, that's going to be a bit of a tough break, I think, for her and for the, for the industry at large. What does she have to do to get that? But then you think, well, would it be good for, say, season three or whatever it is of The Crown being filmed now with Olivia Colman? <laughs> you know, would Netflix think, oh, let's put a bit of our uh, folding money behind Olivia Colman because... Uh, Amazing marketing for our new prestige series. Your, your tinfoil hat is showing, know, David. Tin- <laughs> let's wrap up the supporting role conversation with actress. So we have Amy Adams for Vice, Marina Di Tavira for Roma, Regina King, you know, if Beale Street could talk, Emma Stone and Rachel Vice both for the favourites. Who should win and uh, who will win? So, so the only one I'm a bit hesitant on is Amy Adams. I'm a big fan of her. I've loved her ever since I saw her in the film Junebug. Old yeah, Oscar, her first Oscars. Academy Award nomination, I think. In 2005, I think it was. Incredible performance. Um, and she's sort of been a regular on the on the red carpet ever since, I guess. Um, but Vice wasn't her strongest work and all the strongest thing about the film. I would be happy with any of the other four, frankly. But the, uh, to be honest, Regina King for Beale Street, right. which is... I think an incredible film and I feel quite sad that it hasn't got more love beyond her. Uh, I hope that that film wins in every category mm-hmm. for which it is nominated. Do which you I think agree, is... Robbie, yeah, or? I mean, for me, the standout performance of those five is Regina King. Mm-hmm. I think it would be um, crazy if it went to anyone else. But I think the most interesting nomination in the category is Marina de Tavira because it proves that kind of depth of support for Roma that she might be really a conversation prior to this. Yeah. No, not at all. So, not at all. Um, um, but she did a lot of press, didn't she? She did insofar as talking about the film and talking about Quaron's process and blah, blah, blah. But mm. I don't think they were ever... I never got the sense that they were pushing her mm. as this kind of standout performer to be recognised. Certainly not so much as uh, mm. Jalitza Aparicio, who was this idea that she was discovered. And, you know, that story has been rehearsed a number of times because it's an exciting story. And it's, it's very satisfying to see someone with such incredible talent just being, you know, found out of the blue. I didn't sense that there was that same effort made to push Marina de Tavira and, you know, as being as worthy of, of being singled out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, for me, Regina King, I think she probably will win. Um, I think she absolutely deserves to win. And, and she I'm going to put you vote. on the spot, Robbie, and ask who would Mar- Marina de Tavira have nudged out as her kind of, yeah, she was a surprise. Goodness. Who, um, who, that's, who, that's who, who were the predicted five be- um, before her? Off the top of my head, I'm struggling to think who else was in the conversation that Oscars is like Christmas in that, you know, <laughs> there's this immense sense of build up. And then once it's done, all you're left with are the presents and that's all you, you, you're kind of bothered about. Um, it's tricky to say. Um, she wasn't in a BAFTA nominee. So BAFTAs must have picked mm. someone else. Well, uh, looking down the list of films that, that were nominated, but maybe underperformed first man, Claire Foy, perhaps. Yes. Mm. No. So she was the fifth person mm. in, in, in BAFTAs. So mm. that would, that would kind of have made sense as a nomination. Right. Would she have been mine? Mm, I want, maybe here's a, here's another tin tin foil helmet theory. Do you think that the failure of Girl in the Spider's Web with Claire um, Foy in the lead 
might have tainted her chances of awards glory. Is is there any sense of this kind of, we're not just awarding you for the film, but we're awarding you for like your sage choices throughout the year kind of thing and how, you know, how you present yourself as an actor? I, I think it's more to do with this sort of miasma of derangement that descended around First Man when it was when it was released and it wasn't this massive, top-thumping, nationalistic, uh, booyah production. I think the film has not got its due. And I think in the same way as if Beale Street could talk, you know, the, the, the Oscars, we, we were talking about this earlier, in fact, the Oscars inaugurated by Jenkins and Damien Chazelle as these two, you know, bright young hopes for the industry on two excellent films. But then when they've come back with the next efforts, they've, they've been kind of broadly ignored, which is crazy. First Man's done done well in, in technical nominations, but it's, it's something that we'll look back on and say, why wasn't that nominated more? And the same with If Beale Street Could Talk, which is just, I think, another, basically a masterpiece. Um, it's crazy it's not around more. This is the thing I think that people talk about is the makeup of the Academy is male, it's older, it's white. And, you know, when they are coming to making their choices of the films that they're going to award, they are thinking in terms of, well, you know, this is the one film about black people or by a black person that mm. I you know, that I want to put all my chips on. And it's kind of horrible that, that I think the people that there is almost a sort of tacit acceptance of, well, that's just how it is, you know, which is, I think, loops back to the beginning about why I don't like the Oscars. <laughs> right. so. Also, we'll talk talk shortly about um, Olivia Coleman, But in this category, we have two favourite nominees, Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz, for a film where there really isn't a lead. There are three leads, pretty much. So who makes that decision about who's going to go for the big prize? Ultimately, it's left up to the voters. You can nominate people in whichever category you choose, but there's a lot of heavy-handed guidance given to people by the distributors when they'll put out screeners or take out ads in the trade press. They'll split stuff up into category. You know, for your consideration, best director, Yorgos Lanthimos, lead actress, Olivia Coleman, supporting actress. So they'll, they'll guide you and say, mm-hmm. you know, these are the categories in which we would like you to consider these performances. Uh, but I agree, it's a... It's a triangular lead that you know there's you can't break up that tripartite core of the film at all there's a terrific bit of trivia um it wasn't until the first few years of the oscars you could be in multiple categories if you're an actor and it was in the mid-1940s that they brought in an actor could only be nominated for either supporting or lead when barry fitzgerald was nominated in both supporting actor and lead actor in the same role and then his co-star Bing Crosby won Best Actor, so he didn't didn't work for him splitting the vote. But now you can only be in one or the other, and it has to be a decision in advance. But that brings us to the end of supporting roles. Up next, leading roles as we dig into the actors. So nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role, we have Christian Bale for Vice, Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born, Willem Dafoe for At Eternity's Gate, Ryan Malik for Bohemian Rhapsody, and Viggo Mortensen for Green Book. Should win? Will win? Surprises in here? Are they allowed to, like, not give an award? Is, can, can, can someone just kind of go up on the stage, put a little kind of black hat on and say, no, there will be no awards <laughs> this year? I think there's, there's no question this is a dire category. It's, it's one of the, the, the worst acting categories I can remember. I, I would say Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale both definitely deserve to be in the mix for me. I think the other three are, are, are fairly questionable, particularly Rami Malek. Mm. Um, I would like to see Bradley Cooper win. I think Rami Malek has won a lot of the precursor awards, such as the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, but I wonder, you know, the, the thing is with the, the, the separate Guild Awards is that People never have to consider the year's batch, uh, you know, in, in, in sum. 
So the fact that Bradley Cooper hasn't been nominated for Best Director this year might sway voters to reward him where he has been nominated, which is in Best Actor. So that's a consideration Screen Actors Guild voters would never have to make because they're only voting on acting. Mm. Um, on that point, though, it's, it, I, re- I read that apparently he, when it came to his campaigning, he was entirely campaigning to be awarded as director. And I, I think him being a, um, nominated for actor actually ended up coming as a bit of a surprise for him because, you know, he hadn't really com- campaigned on that front. I mean, he's, he's been much nominated in the past, so the Academy clearly really likes what he does. And I think he's probably right to, to campaign on director because I think it's a first feature. He directed the hell out of A Star is Born. I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic, it's, you know, particularly he hadn't really cut his teeth anywhere before that. Um, it was a big swing. And for me, it really worked. But yes, it's a dreadful category. I think if Rami Malek does win, it will just be an absolute fist-biting disaster. You know, very, very embarrassing. Um, immediately as well. It won't be something that will look bad in five years' time. It will look bad now. I think that what's missing of, from this uh, category is uh, Clint Eastwood from The Mule, ah. which I saw this weekend. And ah. he gives an incredible performance. And I, th- I think it's relevant to say so because obviously Cooper and Eastwood are a very kind of entangled master-student relationship. Well, was, was one of Cooper's previous nominations for American, American Sniper, Sniper, in fact. Yeah. Exactly, yes. Eastwood was originally going to be doing A Star is Born, and oh. then apparently there's this, this rumour that Eastwood wanted to keep the release of The Mule pretty low-key because he didn't want to get in the way of his boy, Bradley Cooper. That was from what my colleague Adam told me. I don't know where he got that from. But, you know, it's another tin helmet yeah. mad theory. Thing, bring in the insider. Yeah, bring in the insider ins- ghost. scenery. But... Um, <laughs> That, that would be my addition to spice up this category. Well, moving from one of the mo- more underwhelming uh, lineups to probably one of the stronger lineups of this year, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Yelitsa Aparicio for Roma, Glenn Close for The Wife, Olivia Colman, The Favourite, Lady Gaga, A Star Is Born, Melissa McCarthy for Can You Ever Forgive Me? What do we think about this lineup, uh, David? Does it make you more excited? This is a kind of absolute reversal. I think I'd be very happy with any of those people winning, really. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yep. Very, very same. It seems pretty tightly fought so far. I would imagine that Glenn Close will win it on the night. As a, you know, it would be very, very bitter if if, if it didn't happen because of our history of having Bit, been nominated. Bitter for who? Well, bitter for everyone. I think you know it would be a shame to. You know, I would probably cast my vote for Lady Gaga in that category. I mm. think what she does in that in that role, I think, is is, is amazing. But um, I would still feel very sad for Glenn Close if she didn't win on the night because. What more does she kind of have to do to to take it? I know that's kind of completely contradictory to be voting for someone, but to want someone else to win. But okay, so maybe if I was voting in the Oscars, I would vote for Glenn Close, even though I think, you know, those five performances judged separately, Lady Gaga is the absolute standout of standards. But they're all great, as you said. I think it's interesting because in, in the lead, in both actor and actress, you have Glenn Close in The Wife, and you have Willem Dafoe in At Eternity's Gate. I think there is a bizarre history in the, in the Oscars of these kind of strange outlier films in which just the performance is kind of plucked from the entire enterprise. You know, nothing else is thrown there. I, I don't believe either of these have got any other no, nominations, have they? I think it's a very strange occurrence. I almost think you could have a film season of like these films that have had one acting nomination and, no, and absolutely nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the film's... There's a reason why they haven't got any other nominations. But I think it's very strange how you can have these almost contradictory that you can have a a great performance in a bad film. I mean, I just, for me, it's sort of, it's all tangled up together. I would like to see Olivia Coleman because I think 
she is part of an enterprise. There is a there is a machinery, and she is part of it. And she's making other elements of the film work. It's not just working for herself, I guess. Mm-hmm. Another film which I think is great, and I, and we haven't really talked about in terms of where is its nominations, but Mariel Heller as best director, and can you ever forgive me for best picture? Mm-hmm. I think would have. I, I think it's a it's, it's quite a low key film, but I think mm-hmm. it's one that really stuck in my head for a long time, and, and I think it's still waters run deep kind of film. Um, yeah, and impeccably directed as well. Yeah, I, mean, you, really. I, I would be very surprised if other directors wouldn't recognise the, the the level of craft in that. From, from the outset, that film looked absolutely looked like a kind of gun for hire job, and I, and I approached it as such. It looked like a kind of oh, we've had there's a script knocking around Hollywood for but a while. You know, it and, changed hands a few times. I mean, it was initially going to be a Nicole Hall of Center film. And then she passed it on to Mario Heller, I think because she'd mentored her at some kind of... Uh, right. And she saw that she would do a good job in it, particularly after the die of a teenage girl. You know, you can totally see the the artistic progression from that film to this. But then Mario Heller next year has one of the front 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 runners yes, for yeah, Oscars 2020. Yes, uh, Mr. Rogers' film. The, the yeah. guy who, no, who nobody in, in Britain knows about. He was huge in America, so we, we shall see. Or will that be another one where performances get nominated and director gets forgotten? But speaking of director, we have two categories left to talk about. That's best director and best picture. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So let's start with Best Director. I think this is a pretty exciting category, really. Uh, this is Spike Lee for Black Landsman, Pavel Pavlikovsky for Cold War, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favourite, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, and Adam McKay for Vice. So what do we think about this one? Likely winner, deserving winner, Robbie? Cuaron all the way on, all the on, way. on both sides, yeah. But it's an interesting category because you have two nominees for foreign language films, which is rare. I think it's, it's generally well chosen. I, I think I would have because I've known about Yorgos Lanthimos probably for longer than most Academy voters, I would have introduced mm-hmm. him into the, the running earlier. I wouldn't necessarily put him in for the favourite, although I think he's directed it. You know, the direction is great on that film. Likewise with Adam McKay, I'm not quite sure about his his position there. And, you know, we talked earlier about um, 
these sort of no-brainer, particularly like Marielle Heller, who we just mentioned, these no-brainer nominees who didn't materialise, who, who are all women. But yeah, I think the, the standout work there is absolutely Quarons. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that there is a kind of almost backhanded element to this in that by having two foreign language films that there is a sort of unsaid commentary about, well, the, the American directors haven't really been bringing it this year, you know. This is where Barry Jenkins, Damon Chazelle, mm-hmm. they're probably like looking at their watches and being like, you know, what's up, guys? <laughs> yeah, but then I think you would, you would struggle to say Pavlikovsky doesn't deserve to be on it. No, you know, no, yeah. but I mean, I think that's interesting in that you know we we assume that the Oscars in same in the same way that the Baftas skews towards British talent, the Oscars you would assume skews towards, and you know you think it is an American award show. Mm. They have a best foreign pick film you know it's that kind of world of cinema is segmented in this very specific way so to have those films in the mix in the bigger categories is feels almost like well we're having to kind of go to this secondary repository of 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 art to be able to like fill out the top slots really another good pet theory there david yeah sorry i'm uh, you know (laughs) one one nomination that jumps out for me is spike lee for black Klansman. something i completely agree i think that his direction is so deft in that film, but it's his first nomination for director. Uh, is this is this a, uh, a nomination that's writing or wrong? I'm sure that's part of the reason behind it. You know, it's this very open goal to finally get him listed for, for for director. So why on earth wouldn't you seize it as a you know as the director's branch? This is a great opportunity to show that, and because he won an honorary Oscar didn't last he? year, yeah. So so there's this these are these kind of excuse making Oscars that oh we're sorry we've not found a way to work you into it somehow yet, and then now they actually have, which is great. Yeah, but it does. It absolutely strikes me as like, let's pounce on this. Mm-hmm. But who do you think? Quaron all the way for you oh, as well, absolutely. David? I mean, you know, I'm a fan of that, that film. Mm-hmm. And I think what he does is kind of, it's kind of as close as you can get to magic, really. So, And if we could bump one, would that have been Adam uh, McKay? I, I, I probably would have bumped. I, I'm not, I know you're a big fan of Vice. I wasn't as big a fan. Um, I'm a bit baffled as to how it's in the conversation the way it is. So, yeah, I would have probably nudged Vice off and brought in Barry Jenkins who I think his direction of Beale Street is so incredible but then if you could bring in female directors etc Deborah Granick oh, Lynn Ramsey if you never really hear yes Mario Heller as oh, well I mean sorts. you know um, I think you could probably do five different directors and it would have been an, a list that made sense Poiron is is maybe if he feels quite ahead of the pack so I think you could have had Poiron and four completely different directors in there really. mm. and it would have felt natural it, yep. would made, it would have made sense and now talking about best picture we've talked about these films a great length it's 5am we've been up all night not drinking the cocktails because we're working of course Robbie but these films again up for best picture Black Panther Black Klansman Bohemian Rhapsody The Favourite Green Book Roma A Star is Born and Vice up for best picture what does best picture actually mean in terms of what do voters look for when they choose for it. Exactly. What, what, what is being awarded? It's genuinely, it's this idea of what are we as an industry most proud of in the last 12 months. I think that's what it must surely boil down to. I mean, it's not they're not approaching this like critics, where we will sit down and mark our critics' circle ballots in a certain, with a certain mindset. Weirdly this year, of course, that landed on Roma, so fine. But... Um, I, I think it's this idea of, you know, what, what do we... And you can see, you know, if you look back at the Best Picture category... In the 70s, those films, they, they look kind of canonical now. That This is your sort of path through 70s Hollywood. It's basically marked out in Best Picture nominations. If you want to get an idea for what cinema, certainly American cinema, was about at the time, those nominations are a very good place to start. But then if you look 
at uh, the, the category in recent years, the films have tended to be fairly kind of low-budget independent productions that have not made much money at all. And every year they'll throw in maybe a Mad Max Fury Road or a Dunkirk or something like that just to, to even it up slightly. But this year stands out for me in that you have some very, very successful films out. Of course, this was the year that they, they threatened to do the ludicrous Best Popular Film Oscar, the kind of runner-up prize, uh, which was obviously engineered to finally give something to a superhero film because Black Panther was, you know, could could halfway credibly win something. But, um, you know, you, so you had Black Panther, you have Bohemian Rhapsody, which has made a lot of money as well, and A Star is Born as well. And so so the idea that these films are in, in the mix, I think, is a it signals quite an appealing turning point, um, Bohemian Rhapsody aside, which is, of course, as we previously discussed, is awful. I would like to see A Star is Born win because it would give encouragement to studios that you can get behind this kind of character-driven, old-fashioned kind of melodrama style of filmmaking again. You know, mid-budget, which is an area of the industry that has just evaporated in the last decade or so, in fact, probably longer than that even. And you can make a lot of money with it, and the industry will go, hooray, have some Oscars for it. So if, if A Star is Born bombs out in the way it kind of feels at the moment, it may do. I think that would be heartbreaking, even though I think Roma is, you know, by a squeak, the better film. And I would vote for Roma. I would be delighted if A Star is Born won as well. Mm-hmm. Is it not good, though, that The Star is Born has made, you know, a shit ton of money? Mm-hmm. Is that not enough? So is, does box office trump the Oscars? Is it more important to make money than to win Best Picture? It's, well, I mean, look, both matter. And they, they, they signify different things. That's why Netflix has been pursuing this as assiduously as they have done. You know, Netflix is got a lot of subscribers going on. There's obviously a lot of money moving around in Netflix at the moment. They're commissioning an enormous amount of television and, and you know buying a, a huge number of films. But to have that sort of stamp of respectability that, the, that only an Oscar can confer is really important. And A, a Star is Born, if it does win Best Picture, that would be this great kind of reaffirmation of that decision at Warner Brothers to say, yep, okay, so Eastwood's not going to write this. Let's give it to Bradley Cooper. Let's allow him to make it in the way that he did. And let's, you know, get behind this kind of film again in a way that we've not really done for for, for a very long time. If we're looking at it as a two-horse race, and I, I, I'm, I'm sort of with you on this, so I think that, you know, it does seem like it's A Star is Born v. Roma at this point. I think, Although, no, I think there's others, there's or, or, others that are Green, very Green, much in the mix, Green but those are, those is, are my Green two Book is, is, the, is also, very, I think, very much in the mix. That would be an interesting kind of two-way race in that you, you you would have the, are we looking back at the old, robust studio melodrama that harks back to the classical era of Hollywood? Or are we going to look to, you know, what is ostens- people are saying is the future of cinema, the future of, you know, physical buildings are going to be no more the magic of, of celluloid is going to be no more. Everything is going to be at home on your telly through a subscription service. You're not going to have, you know, there's going to be no little ticket stub that you can keep, you know. Were it to get down to that two-way race, you know, you're, you're sort of almost voting on, you know, something more than the films. If it, you know, if you are voting on that idea of what, what, what are these films representative of? Yes, I have no doubt there's an anti-Netflix contingent who will not vote for Roma on the basis that it is a Netflix film. But then what you've seen Netflix do is in in a way that they weren't able to do with Cannes when they had their famous bust up about distribution a couple of years ago. Netflix is now, you know, they have conceded on Roma that these films need to be shown in, in, in cinemas. To an extent, they've done that because it's a qualifying condition to get your film into the Oscars. You have to have opened in a cinema in, in, in LA and in New York for a certain, I think it's for a week uh, before a certain date. But they've they've screened it more than that. Quaron is a big enough player that he can say, look, this should be seen ideally in a cinema. And then they will they will allow that to happen. So 
they've made that concession in order to become more central to the Oscar conversation, which I think is interesting. Um, you know, I think cinema can be both things. It can be sitting at home with a, with a streaming service and watching something like Tamara Jenkins' Private Life, for example, that may not have been the kind of film that would even be picked up by a cinema near you, even if it had theatrical distribution behind it. And, you know, I don't feel that lost anything in, in, in watching it on Netflix at all. And then it can also be these big, you know, swelling audience participation things, almost like A Star is Born, where to feel people sobbing on all sides of you and Dolby Atmos is all part of the, the, the fun. Mm-hmm. We talk about this, you know, how many, however many horses are in this race. Green Book, this is a film that has been has had some negative campaigning against it. These few final weeks where maybe tweets are unearthed, maybe things are said on camera in interviews and so on that may uh, harm the film in the Twitter discourse, the online discourse, does that have an effect for Best Picture voters? I think it certainly does. And I think Green Book is an interesting case in point because immediately after its surprise show of strength in the BAFTA nominations, these two stories about its surface, the one relating to the writer's pro-Trump tweet in the past and then also to uh, Peter Farley's conduct on, on set on previous films, that is probably not a coincidence. Negative campaigning is officially not allowed, but what you do find is that stories will, will emerge at certain points in the race that change people's perceptions. And look, La La Land is a great example of this because there was this discussion around La La Land that it was a film about a white guy who saves jazz. Now, that is just categorically not what that film is about. You have to be to approach that with a very, very perverse mindset in order to think that's what La La Land is actually about or any kind of relate, you know, relation to that. And yet it really, for a few weeks, that, that took hold. And the epitome of this was the year that uh, Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan, which was, I think, a fairly mm. kind of wrong, obviously wrong result. Um, this idea, this kind of meme that Saving Private Ryan completely lost its mojo after those opening 15 minutes. Now, that's obviously wrong. If you've seen Saving Private Ryan, you know that's not the case. But this was a discussion point that was put about by Harvey Weinstein, who was campaigning for uh, Shakespeare in Love. And for some reason, that caught fire. And, you know, you talk to people about Saving Private Ryan today, and they will regurgitate this talking point that, oh, it's only the beach landings, and then after that it gets boring, which it, which it just doesn't. But if you can instill that kind of note of doubt in people's heads, then it can, you know, that, that springs to mind when people come to mark their ballots, and it can, it can make the difference between, you know, passing over or marking your cross. I, di- I kind of disagree with you on this idea of, of La La Land. Not that, that it's ludicrous that it was th- talked about as um, a film about white saviour and whatnot, but an aspect of the Oscars is that by entering in this race, you're fair game to these kind of mad theories about, you know, your, your film is going to be put under intense scrutiny. The, you know, what it means, what it's saying, the subtext, your past, the past of all the people involved in it. You know, what, what does Trump call it? Like, it's extreme vetting, you know, mm. it's like it's it's the body cavity search of, of kind of film <laughs> film acceptance, I guess. For, for me, one of the reasons that I don't really like the Oscars is I think that sometimes we don't need to be giving all this attention to these films. Like, you know, this some I think it's undue. You know, there are so many other interesting things that we could be talking about and other maybe smaller films that we could be championing that aren't in this race that we just like we can't take our eyes off being pernickety about elements of of these films that have been kind of corralled in front of our eyes. Um, you see really great, amazing film critics kind of almost locked on this discussion point because it's a sort of professional necessity, not because they actually want to. Um, that's an element to me that, that 
sticks in my craw, I guess. And, and we've just dedicated almost an hour to talking yeah. it through, David. An enjoyable hour. An enjoyable hour. One film we've not talked about at all, really, Black Panther. There's a billion dollars at the box office, plus a film that's opened up whole new audiences and demographics to mainstream cinema make a difference? Um, I sense that, you know, the the nomination is kind of the reward in and of itself. It's the first superhero film to have been nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. Um, The the whole expanding of the the nominations for Best Picture from five was after The Dark Knight failed to secure a nomination. This idea that we have to somehow find a way to get a superhero film into the mix. And and now it's it's, it's happened for a film that absolutely deserves to be there on its own merits. I mean, you look at the, the, the kind of massive bundle of craft nominations Black Panther got as well. It's there deservedly. But I think that having ceded that little bit of ground to superheroes now, that will be enough. Although there was a while that it was looking like it was that was going to be the, the consensus pick in that, you know, people who are turned off by Roma and A Star is Born for whatever reason might alight on Black Panther as being, well, it was incredibly popular. And there's a sense in which it's progressive as well because it's, you know, this, this majority black cast as well, which is something that the Oscars obviously needs to demonstrate it's not anti uh, a lot more than it, than it has done in the past. So it's got on paper the, 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 the breadth of nominations to suggest it, it could go on to, to win. But as I say, I think because it's a superhero film, there's a sense that that's enough for now. Mm-hmm. Well, there's potential for a superhero movie with a black superhero could win an Oscar Best Animated Feature. Into the Spider-Verse. Yes, that's true. That's that true. And that actually feels, that that feels fairly, fairly likely as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they may, they may feel... This is the awful thing about the Oscars, is that this idea that, you know, you can say, we've done it. We've covered this subject matter. You know, we've, we've done that area, so we, we don't need to think about it in other categories. That, that is, I think that's the one area that I'm really fascinated about the Oscars, about this, this idea of, like, people feeling they've done their dues. You know, they've, they've, we're going to do this over here, so that means we can do this over here. And we, we're going to make sure we've got this represented in some way in this category so then we can do you know do these things over here and mm-hmm. you know i think it does go back to you know who is the academy who are the people who are voting why are they doing the things they're doing so david is there anything the academy can do to get you on side or is it just uh, fire everybody and start from scratch not really i think i think you'd have to have a full foreign language ticket on every category to make me interested really full you know get rid of the gender um interesting uh split as well and you know i think it just it would need a, a massively radical shake-up really mm-hmm. i think to the point where it would like really put off all the people who use the academy awards as their kind of talk you know their, their sort of central stump for a long period of time do you think with these changes that are happen, happening incrementally robbie this will ever happen that we'll have a fully woke or fully modern oscars no i don't think so because i mean i think that's that's not the nature of the industry. Um, I agree with David in, in, in this this idea of the lack of foreign language nominees outside the foreign language category is, is nuts. But to me, that's not what the Oscars are for. That's what critics' year-end top tens are for, where we're kind of supposedly the expert voices guiding people to the absolute creme de la creme. This is about what the business thinks of itself. And like it or not, that's always what the Oscars is going to achieve. You know, if it messes up spectacularly, that's still because that's what the, that's what the business wants to project. Oh, I'm aware. I'm aware that it's never going to happen. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is this is this is the only way that I could become interested in it. I guess we can but dream. We'll find out on the 25th of February how it all goes down. Who's going to take home those Oscars? You can let us know what you think about the categories, any of them, not just those top six, at L W Lies or at Truth and Movies on Twitter, at Truth and Movies at tclondon.com or at the comments section at lwlies.com/podcast. Robbie, David, thank you so much for joining me today to talk through the Oscars at length. 
Thank you. I have been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital production. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.